seated. Hey, Jordan, do me a favor. Put up the, uh, the chorus. I'm just coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you. You have that, right? You were listening to that very familiar song. It's called The Heart of Worship, and it's a story. It's a story song. It's a story about somebody, for whatever reason, sounds like a believer, sounds like someone who comes to church pretty much every Sunday, maybe goes to Tuesday night, maybe goes to a men's group, maybe goes to mission trips, uh, a church person. It's a story, a testimony, a confessional, really, of a church person who comes to this place where they are open and honest to God and tell a story, a story about drifting, a story about becoming numb, a story about their relationship with Jesus and worship and doing church and serving and giving and and all the trappings of how we do church, uh, suddenly this person has an honest, transparent moment with Jesus. And the heart of the issue is their heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. Next one, Jordan. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. When it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. Challenging. Because if we bring that down to the level of not just worship, but your relationship with God, your understanding of church, is this moment in your life as you sit here this morning all about Him? Is this all about you, Jesus? Or have we, like the writer of that song, made this into something it's not intended to be? Have we become so numbed and churched and versed in what we do here, even just barely over a year here, that if we're honest, we're not even sure why we're here today? Why are you here? Why am I here? Am I here because it's my J-O-B? Why are we here? Why are you here? Why'd you get up? What was your prayer this morning, if you prayed before you got here? What do you, what do you hope to get from this? Where, where's your heart? What is the heart? What is our heart as, as we gather weekly? What is your heart? And then we encourage you to come tonight. What is your heart for coming tonight if you're a man? What's the heart? Why? Right? We can go to men's group all we want. Maybe we have to have a moment and, and say, Lord, I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing that I've turned this men's group into. Or we come Monday morning or Monday night or we serve on a worship team or, or any ministry around here. And maybe we all have to have these moments like, Lord, I'm sorry for the thing I've made this. Because instead of all about you, it's become all about me. 
that's kind of what the heart was. He didn't say it's like, I'm, you know, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. I'm sorry, Lord, uh, for the thing I made. It's all about you because it's been about me. It's all about you, Jesus, because I really made it about me and what I get and, and how this is going to meet my needs and how this can make me feel and, and what I get out of this, right? And I, and I was just thinking about this. As, as you were singing that song, I hadn't really heard it all the way through during rehearsal, and, and I'm just sitting there, and I'm like, Lord, thank you for a song that really goes to the heart of the heart of today's message. I'm like, wow, what a setup, and I didn't even know it was coming, right? Because in your bulletins there, on the, I believe it's the bottom right, there's a vision mission statement for this church. It says, we are passionate followers of Jesus, committed to helping others passionately follow Jesus for the glory of God. Right? If you're familiar with churchdom, if you're familiar with businesses as a whole, right? Everyone's got a mission vision statement. Chick-fil-A does. Right? What is, what, is the, what is the reason? Why are we here? Right? Well, we need a mission statement. We need everything. Every ministry here needs to be tied to this mission statement. So we come up with a mission. We pray. We, we choose our words very carefully. That whole thing. We don't do this just to be cool. And we don't do this just because we're supposed to. We seek, we seek the Lord. Lord, what is your mission for the well? What is your mission? What are we about here? Every ministry, not just Sundays, every ministry from children's to why we go on missions trips to uh, men's groups, women's groups. What are we about here? Well, we are passionate followers of Jesus, committed to helping others passionately follow Jesus for the glory of God. Key word in there. Anyone want to guess? Passionate. Passionate. Because if you, take out pas- if you take out the word passionate, it becomes pretty bland really quick. Go ahead, put it back up, Jordan. So let's just say, we are followers of Jesus, committing help to helping others follow Jesus for the glory of God. Woo-hoo, that lights my fire. We are followers of Jesus, committing to helping others Follow Jesus for the glory of God. You know what that kind of sounds like? It's like, well, we're a church, and as long as you believe all the right stuff, then we're going to help you believe all the right stuff. Because believing all the right stuff is just following Jesus, right? Isn't that, it reduces it very quickly to a mind-heavy experience of understanding of Christianity. We're followers of Jesus. Well, how do you become a follower of Jesus? Well, you just say the sinner's prayer, don't you? By the way, the sinner's prayer isn't in the Bible. But we reduce Christianity to to methodology, to you say a prayer, Jesus comes in your heart. Now, I guess I'm a follower, so I go to church because that's what followers do. And because we're somehow connected, I guess, in general, we're following God. Insert passion. Changes the whole thing. And now it's a real heart check for me and for you. We are passionate followers of Jesus, committing to helping others passionately follow Jesus for the glory of God. Just a little self-assessment. Don't raise your hand don't, unless you're really honest this morning. On the passion scale, not believing the right stuff scale. Put that aside for a sec. On the passion scale, assuming you believe the right stuff, on the passion scale... Zero to ten, self-assessment in your head, are you? 
Because just as we are. <laughs> See, if you're a visitor here this morning, awesome. Thanks for coming. But on, on that bulletin, there's a, there's a pretty heavy statement that we make as a church to anyone who comes to these doors. We are. Of course, now if we're honest, we have to ask ourselves, just, just flip that. Are we? Just flip those two words and it changes everything. Now, now instead of we are is some generic, cliche, cool slogan, it becomes a heart-penetrating individual question. Are we? Well, the, to answer that question, it requires all of us to be honest and go on that scale. So this morning, just, just again, don't, don't be doing this. Don't be, and don't be giving me numbers for the person next to you either, okay? Don't be like, don't do that. Don't do that. Where are you on your passion for Jesus? Oh. Wow. Where are you? And it's so easy in the world of churchdom to become passionate even about good things. And those good things actually can become distractions. Right? If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 10. Just a quick review from last week, Luke 10, 38. We're going to use this story of Martha and Mary to lead us into uh, what, what, what I believe the Lord wants to take us to, right? Luke 10, 38 to 42. Story, story of Martha and Mary we looked at last, last Sunday. As Jesus and His disciples were on their way, He came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things. But only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will be not be taken away from her. We spent a lot of time on this last Sunday, but what do we have here? We have two sisters. Jesus is invited, and his entourage is invited. And it's kind of a story of passion and misplaced passion. Martha, and we looked at it because of custom, tradition. Many believe she's the older sister. Jesus comes in. Custom, tradition says we have to host him. We have to feed him. We've got to get the house ready, right? And so she is passionate about doing what she believes she needs to be doing. She's so passionate, in, 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 in fact, that because it doesn't appear that anyone shares her passion, her focus turns to her. And slowly and over time, the bitterness and the resentment and the anger start to build because no one seems to share her passion for doing what is what she believes right. In fact, it comes to a boiling over where she, she accuses, she has an outburst in front of everybody, in front of the whole room or house. She, she apparently comes in front and says, Lord, don't you care? 
that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. What did we see last time? That's an accusation. It's not even a question. You ever have someone come to you with a question that you really know is a statement? She comes and she says, you don't care. And my sister's lazy. She's passionate about the wrong thing. Look at what Jesus says. Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. What did we see last week? Jesus lovingly but firmly in love corrects her and says, you're wrong. You're passionate, but you're wrong. It's possible to be passionate, what I call passionately, sincerely wrong. And that's what happens here. He, he, in front of everyone, and I said, I don't know what went down. I'm pretty sure it got pretty quiet. And maybe someone said, I have no idea how it played out. But Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you're wrong. You got all these many things, but there's only one thing. And it says, only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better. I love that. That's actually, in the original language, that's a word picture. It's a culinary term. When he says chosen what is better, some, some uh, versions say has chosen the better portion. What it means is Mary has chosen the best dish on the, on the table. That's what he's saying. He says, you're consumed with all of this stuff that you think is important to me. You're wrong. Your sister has actually chosen the best dish on the table. And I'm not going to take that away from her. And we ask ourselves, Lord, what about our Martha moments? What are we consumed with? What are we passionate about? Even in the world of churchdom, that distracts us. It gets us all riled up. And if we stop long enough, call time out, and sit at Jesus' feet, we might just hear him say, Ah, Richie, Richie. You're distracted and you're worried and you're upset about a lot of things. But only one thing's needed, man. And, and I shared this. And I, and I shared um, some moments uh, about this journey this summer. It was challenging in a lot of ways. Lots of traveling. Lots of good things happening at church. All good. A lot of people out. And, and here's, here's what happened to me. My passion shifted for about two months. My passion shifted from me just being passionate about Jesus and loving Jesus. What was I passionate about over the summer? Making sure things run smoothly. Huge difference. Well, yeah, but you're a pastor. That's what you're supposed to do. And that's your, right? And that's all good. It's all good, right? There was good attendance and, and we, went, we built two houses. It was all good, wasn't it? I'm not saying it wasn't good, except for the fact that that passion to keep things running pushed Jesus out of the main passion. And I wonder how many of us, even as believers, and it's, it's not an accusation about your relationship with the Lord and your belief. It's, it's really like how many of us have misplaced passions? How many of us are distracted, worried, upset about many things 
when the Lord's like, ah, slow down here, cowboy. What are you really passionate about? And have you asked me if that's what you should be passionate about? See, there was a huge assumption on Martha's part. She thought she knew what Jesus really wanted done in that house, and she was wrong. And sometimes the hardest part for us in ministry, sometimes the hardest part for us who are doing our best to be good godly husbands, godly wives, godly parents, whatever, you're trying your best. Sometimes what's most challenging for us good followers of Jesus is to admit, maybe I've been wrong. Maybe I've had some misplaced passions and priorities. And that's why I'm a little bit jaded. That's why I'm kind of a little bit bitter about the church or I don't want to do this one another and stuff that we've been talking about all summer. Because there's a direct relationship. Uh, Jordan, if you put up the vision statement again. We can't miss this. There's a direct relationship. It says, we are passionate followers of Jesus, committed to helping others passionately follow Jesus for the glory of God. Question, if I am not passionately following Jesus, how committed am I really going to be to helping others passionately follow Jesus? If I am not passionately following Jesus myself, come on now, how really committed am I going to be to trying to help someone do what I'm not even doing myself? And that's, Man, that's, that's a huge temptation. I'm going to call it a temptation in churchdom as a whole. That we just get up and we start doing everything well. And we agree, we affirm doctrine, we run churches well. And somehow under that, because we do church well, we sort of assume we're passionate. Jesus had something to say about that in Revelation. Remember the church at Ephesus? Hey, you guys are doing church really well, <laughs> but you left your first love, me. It's a drift that as a church, I have to be very aware of, and, and individually, because the church is made up of individuals, it's called drifting. I've shared with you before when I've gone deep sea fishing, right? The captain does the radar thing. He puts us over the spot where all the fish are on his sonar. We drop our lines. And usually, immediately, everyone gets hit. Boom, boom, boom. And you know, fish on, and it's all exciting. I get so focused on my little spot in the water, and then everything goes quiet, and no one's catching anything. And you're like, what happened? And I was so focused on my little patch of water and my rod that I didn't even realize we drifted half a mile. I couldn't even tell the drift. I didn't feel the drift. My perspective, I didn't look at the islands anymore to see us moving. I was just on my little patch of water waiting for my rod to do this. Consumed with me. I could have been alone on the boat, right? And suddenly you hear, okay, we've drifted, reel them up. We've got to reset. And we reel them all up, and he circles around until he finds it, and he drops us again. I think that happens in my life, can happen in your life, can happen in a church. We get so focused on our little patch. <gasps> Even if the little patch is called Sunday service. We all drop our rods in and everyone's busy around here from like 7 o'clock on and don't leave till you know, the last person leaves and we're all busy and we're all like this and suddenly it goes, right? Initially, lots of activity, lots of good, 
for a year. Attendance is up. New nursery, right? All kinds of good. Fish on! Nursery on, you know? And we're all doing this, and all the different leaders are all excited, and then we're on, then we, get, then we keep driving, we're like, what happened? I don't know. And what could happen is that as a church, we just drifted. And somebody needs to say, okay, reel them up. Reel them up. We need to reset. And I honestly believe that's what the Lord has for us coming into the fall. Nothing's wrong. Okay? There's, I love where we are. God took me through a teachable moment this summer, and I, and I think for some of us who have been a bit hurried and a little bit frazzled this summer, moving into September and October, we just need to, we just need to reel them up, regroup, flip those two words, and not assume we are, but ask ourselves, are we? Just flip those two words, and you have the take-home from today, really. <laughs> you have the take-home. Just flip those two words. Are we? Are you? Because Martha thought she was. Martha genuinely thought she was passionate about Jesus, but she was really passionate about what she thought. And she was wrong. And it took direct correction because she had an outburst against who? Jesus himself! She was mad at Jesus because Jesus didn't line up with her agenda. Now, how many of us get to that place? Not only do we wish others would just do it our way and life would be good, we kind of want God to do it our way. If we, here you go, God. I, here's how to run the universe. I just did it for you this morning. Right? And sometimes God allows things in our life and we're getting bitter and we're getting angry and we're carrying this resentment towards the church and towards other believers. And we're like, it's always them. It's them. It's them. Wasn't Martha's focus on them? When we get to that place, it's always somebody else. I'm not the problem. See, Martha's problem I shared last Sunday. Martha's problem was that she didn't believe she was the problem. And that's what happens in churches all the time. People come in with expectations. And the pastor is the problem. The church is the problem. Children's ministry is the problem. Men's ministry is the problem. Everyone's the problem in the church except... It's the Martha Syndrome. We're passionate about the wrong things. Because maybe we have the wrong expectations, the wrong beliefs about Jesus and a walk with Jesus and what the church is supposed to be about. How many of us are even honest and willing to say and ask the Lord, Lord, is there even a chance? I know there's not, but is there a chance I might be mistaken? We are so prideful and arrogant and quite frankly very self-righteous that even to come to the place of opening the window that we could be the problem, we don't even go there. We're unwilling. We're unwilling. And that's what happened to Martha. She was convinced Jesus was the problem and Mary was the problem. Don't, Don't lose sight of that. She went to Jesus and called him what? What's your word? Lord! Do you see? 
she called him Lord and proceeded to blast him. (laughs) You just need to chew on that one, too. She called him Lord and proceeded to blast Lord. Rather than saying, Lord, I'm feeling really angry. I'm, I got some issues. I'm, I'm pretty bent right now, even with you. I'm pretty bent with Mary. I'm bent with the church. Lord, could it be me? Lord, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to call time out before I have an outburst here. Lord, I need a heart check. Lord, I need you to examine my heart. I need you to show me through your scripture and through counsel and through your Holy Spirit. Lord, is it I? Could it be I? And here's the thing. If you're not even willing to go there, if you shut the door that you could be wrong in some area, you've got to ask your passion. You've got to go back to who's following who. Who's following who in this relationship? Right? Remember when Jesus says this is the new covenant and we spent weeks and weeks on what is covenant. Jesus uses a very specific word for covenant, which is diatheke. Diatheke is a relationship of greater to lesser. Greater to lesser. Where the lesser simply yields and submits to the greater. So if you say, I'm in covenant, I put my faith in Jesus, therefore I'm in covenant with Him. Understand, it's a very specific word, diatheke, which is always greater to lesser. Where the greater sets the terms and the lesser follows. And who receives all the benefit? The lesser. The gospel. The gospel is diatheke. Who sets the terms? Who set the terms of the gospel? God did. We either accept it or reject it. But he, it's His terms. That's diatheke. We get that at the gospel, but somehow we forget that when we follow Jesus, He said, follow me. <laughs> Which is diatheke. It's a diatheke relationship. The other word for covenant is suntheki. In that, in that culture, it was diatheki, greater to lesser. Suntheki is peer-to-peer. This is negotiation. This is bargaining. This is how businessmen did it. They entered into covenants, contracts, but it was a suntheki. And everyone knew that. It was give and take. Let's barter. Let's talk. Right? Jesus says, come follow me, but we're going to be diatheki. Oftentimes when we're struggling with the Lord and our passion, it's because we've shifted into suntheki with Jesus. We want to now negotiate. Suddenly, what was Lord, Lord, nevertheless not my will be done. Lord, I follow you. I leave everything. Now everything makes sense. Take up your cross. Follow me. It's diatheki. He sets the terms. We start that way. Somewhere along the line, as believers, we turn this way. And we're like, Lord, you don't care. Lord, you follow me for a time. Come here, come here, Jesus. Remember Peter? Remember Peter? When Jesus says, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die, what did Peter do? The Bible says he pulled Jesus aside and blasted him. Not you. Never, Lord. Thank you. So sometimes maybe, maybe the passion has drifted because the nature of your understanding of your following and your covenant relationship has shifted. 
And it's no longer, oh, Lord, I love you. Thank you for saving my soul. Thank you that my name is written in heaven. Thank you that as I sit here, my name is written in the book of life. And if something happens to me on the way home, I know I'm going to heaven. I'm your child. You'll never leave me nor forsake me. Oh, I was, I was lost. I was blind. And now I'm saved. I'm a new creation. Instead of just like, oh, thank you. Here's my life. Suddenly we're like, Lord, can you just, come on, my way's better than yours. Right? And we, we, we shift. And, and, and I love that story. And then I was thinking today, Lord, help us to, to bring some application even further to this. So if you go to Matthew 6, Matthew, Mark, Luke 6, or Matthew, turn to Matthew 6, and, and here's just another example, I think for many of us, even practical about this idea of where are we focusing? Where does God want us to focus? If we're going to be passionate followers of Jesus, how do we do that? What does that even mean to be a passionate follower of Jesus? We're going to look at that over the next few weeks. Matthew 6, starting in verse 24. We're going to read quite a bit and then we're going to come back. Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, By worrying, add a single hour to your life. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Very similar passage, in many ways, to Martha and Mary. And yet now it kind of brings it home to us. Because he's talking about food, clothing, the necessities of life. That if we're not careful about where we put our focus and priorities, we can get caught up in worrying. Worrying. It's really interesting in verse 25 when he says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry. The way that that's written in in the original language in the verb, it means stop something in progress. It means, hey, all of you out there who are worrying right now on September 16th, whatever you're worrying about, verse 25 says, stop that. It means stop something in progress, right? Verse 31 and verse 34, where he says, do not worry. What he says, with that, the, the construction of that means, don't even start. Verse 25, hey, all of you at the well this morning, stop worrying. 
Verse 31 and 34. And by the way, don't even start. How many of you find that a wee bit challenging as you sit there? Stop worrying and don't even start. And what's interesting, that word worry is to be pulled apart, to be pulled in different directions. That's what the word worry. Anyone ever felt like you're just being pulled apart? Got this, I got this, I got the kids, I got the money, I got the career, I got my health. You're just pulled apart and you're worrying. You know what's really interesting? The, the etymology, the origin of the word worry, it comes from the word strangle and choke. Fascinating. Worry comes from the <laughs> strangle and choke. So if you and I are caught up in worrying, I wonder how much that chokes out the fruit of the Spirit. I wonder how much that strangles the passion for Jesus. Right? So if you're wondering where you are on that passion, passionate follower of Jesus, application for the morning question is, well, where are you worrying? What's your level of worry? What's your level of worry? Right? And now it gets really, really personal again because here's the thing. Worry is directly related to your trust in God. A lot of us even in the church say, well, I've always worried. I'm just a worry wart. And we excuse it. But the truth is that that worry, right, Worry has to do with your faith and trust in God and His character and His ability to care for you. We never personalize it that way. We sort of put a label on it and excuse it. Right? One writer even calls it practical atheism. Practical atheism. It doesn't mean you're not saved, but it does mean that by the way you act in the practicality of life, you're acting as if there is no God. You're worrying is betraying your belief structure. So you say you're a believer in Christ and yet you live as a practical atheist, as if God isn't on the throne and God can't take care of you. And Wah! And then when we go there and we're consumed with worry and we sort of wonder and we believe that we have to help God run the universe, that's when things get, get out of whack. This summer, when I, instead of bringing my concerns... And my sense of responsibility. See, there's a difference. There's concern and godly sense of responsibility. That's fine. And then there's worry. There's a distinction between worry, concern, responsibility. So, for me, with everyone traveling this past summer, my concern for the well-being of the church and my responsibilities here slid into worry. And I wasn't sure that God could run this church without me. So I put it all on my back. I put it all on my back. And I slid into a loss of passion and joy and it was duty and it was hard work and all because I wasn't so sure that God couldn't run this church without me being here. Right? Pride. Arrogance. Right? Oh, they need me. I, I love this quote I shared with, with Martin today or this week. So I was reading and it said, you're only indispensable until you say no. 
see we walk around in our life. I'm indispensable. They need me. I can't leave. I'm indispensable. But if something comes up and I say, I can't be there, sorry, no, what do you find out this fast? They kept moving without you. You weren't as indispensable as you thought. God is bigger than you thought. He can run his church with or without me. Right? And yet we put it all on our back. I gotcha. Come on, let's make it through the summer. And it was unhealthy. And I praise God for, for good brothers in the Lord and sisters in the Lord, honestly, who spoke truth to me the last couple of weeks in email and in person. Spoke truth to me. Said, dude, in so many words, you're wrong. You need, to, you, need to, you need to pull out of this here, buddy. This is not healthy. This is not healthy. And I was so grateful that I had people in my life that as uncomfortable as it may have been for them, but they spoke the truth. And they said, this is what I see. This is what I see. This is what I hear. And I'm concerned about you. And I received that. And then, you know, I'm like, you know, see, now it just made me sound really good, huh? I had a hard time receiving that. <laughs> Because there's a part of me that's like, you have no idea, do you? If you only knew. See, part of me wants to justify and get, get defensive right away versus, no, okay, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for bringing this person into my life. That cares about me so much to speak the truth in love. And I received it. And this, this has helped me to process this. And I'm like, Lord, how many more in the church are like this? We're worried. We're strangled. We're choked. We're passionate about the wrong things. How many of us, right? Because he says here, look guys, look what it says in verse 32. For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. He calls us out. He says, hey church, people who were consumed with food and clothing and all the material stuff, those are the ones that don't even know God. He's calling out his children. He says, are you acting like them? That's what the world does. That's what people do who don't have a relationship with the God of the universe who we believe created everything. Amen? He says, don't act like them. That's what the unbelievers do. They're consumed with the stuff of the world. We're different. You're my child. You're my child, right? And, and then he says, look at verse 33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. There it is. There's the, there's the Mary and Martha. Martha was consumed by a whole lot, many. And he says, hey, Martha, Mary had one. In this passage, he says, hey, you can be consumed with food, clothing, all the material stuff. But in verse 33, he gives us the one. The priority. The first. Look what he says. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. It's a challenge to our faith right then and there. Us who sit here. Are you going to trust Him? Are you going to have the faith to put first things first? Are we going to have the faith in Him to keep first things first? It's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. Proverbs 4.23, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Colossians 3.23, Whatever you need to do, work out with all your heart, 
as working for the Lord, not for men. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Question, what is the first in your life right now? Be careful. What's the priority? Be careful. Because usually our firsts and our priorities are revealed in our use of time and money and energy, our our thought life. See, when I say what's the first and what's your priority, many of us want to give give the right answer, but I'm asking for the right answer. I'm asking you to take time out this week even and say, truly, Lord, if I open my checkbook and if I keep track of my time, what truly is the first? What truly is reflected as my priority? Because the truth is we all do what we want to do. We really do. All right, I can be as tired as tired can be, but if someone says, hey, you want to go fishing? I'm up at 4 a.m. Crazy how I just made two extra hours to get up. It's crazy, right? Anyone? Right? We're, we're, we're taking the kids to Magic Mountain in the middle of summer. Crazy how they can get here at 8 a.m. That's a miracle. They're probably up early at, on the sun summer, right? They get up. They're excited. And they wake up the parent. We've got to get to church on time. We're going to Magic Mountain. Right? We do what we want to do. So before you're quick to answer what your first is, maybe you need to do an eval and say, oh, wow, okay, let me do a time assessment. Let me do a, a money assessment. Let me do a thought assessment. Let me do a resource allocation assessment. Because that will really reveal your priorities in your life. That will really reveal it. And here's the thing. It's not necessarily bad or evil things. It can be good things. That's the trap. That is the trap. It's not bad or evil things. It's quote-unquote good things. Even quote-unquote beneficial things. Right? I'm going to give you a list. Remember what I said. Not necessarily bad things, but here's a list. Just things to think about to help you. Possible, and here's the thing. Let me help you. Usually when we think of priorities, we think of trying to... How many of you say, this is my priority and everything goes down like this, linear? Anyone, right? We tend to stack. Say, here's priority one, two, three. And then we struggle trying to keep, well, God's number one. Then my family, then my job, and you make your list. And then somehow, because it's vertical hierarchy, we struggle with keeping number one, number one. That's, that's many of us are raised. Priority is a vertical hierarchy. Not so much in your walk with the Lord because our heart is the wellspring. When I say priority and first, the best illustration is this. This is priority and this is first. And these are all the areas in your life. So when he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, he's saying, hey, I'm talking about your relationship with me, your passion for me, Seeking the things of God first, because it touches everything like this, okay? So here's a list of possible good and maybe not so good things that can take this. That can take this. How about this? Happiness. Financial stability. Career. Pleasure. Affluence. Peace relationships, approval, status, social causes, politics, 
and I'll show you mentality. Anger. Insecurity. How many of us have insecurity here? Everything in our life is driven by insecurity. Serving in the church. For me personally, pastoring in the church. Family, kids, sports, hobbies, entertainment, retirement, the American dream. Etc., etc. What drives you? What drives you? Really, what drives you? What are you really passionate about? Huh? Because Jesus says we're to seek Him first. We're to seek Him first. The things of God, my relationship with God. There's a quote by John MacArthur. It says this, A priority then is something that comes before everything else. It precedes everything else. It's ahead of everything else. It is then what is supreme, what is essential, what is foundational, what is preeminent, what is antecedent to everything that follows. So when you talk about priority, you're really saying, what in my life comes before anything else? What is before anything else and everything else? That's a weighty question. Revealed by our time and our money and our thought life and how we, what we look at on the internet and who we, it, 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 it's glaring if you're willing to be honest and look at it, look at your life, your priority, what is center, what is central to your life. Just ask, ask someone to tell you. <laughs> ask someone who knows your schedule and knows you well enough and if you're really honest, ask somebody, hey, what do you see as the priority in my life? Permission to speak freely, by the way. Right? It's challenging. It's challenging. It's passion. Martha was passionate, but she was passionate about the wrong things. We can get passionate about the stuff of the world and the material things, and Jesus says, no, I want you to be passionate about me, the things of the spiritual world. And sometimes it gets real muddy. And, and I've got to share this with you because sometimes, guys, we use God. We don't necessarily focus on a relationship with God. God is a resource to get something. And I've got to share this with you. About 20 years ago, before we moved up here, there was a big multi-level marketing thing that swept the country under the guise of a Christian organization. And I was invited to one of these presentations. And it was fine. It was someone I loved, someone I knew, and they were way into this multi-level thing and wanted to share. And I, and I said, okay, I'll listen to this. And I sat there, and I started to hear the presentation. And my blood started to boil. I, for, I, it was totally unexpected. I just started to get angry. And me being in sanctification didn't handle that really well back then. And at a certain point, I just stood up. You were there. I don't know if you remember this. I stood up and I, and I just point blank said, Don't use God! Don't use God! I understand this is a business thing and all this, but please, do not couch this. 
under the Christian banner and use God to get the house on your fridge. And the material things. I understood it. I'm not slamming it. It's fine if your heart's right. But I'm so careful and so cautious because I think a lot of us in the church grow up and we don't really want a relationship with God. We don't want to be passionate. He's our resource. He's a resource to get what I want. He's a resource. And so we read our Bible. Why? Because I need something. We come to church. Why? Because I need something. How many of us seek God, love God, love Jesus, simply because He's God in Jesus? <laughs> Personal, I love my wife because she's my wife. Not because she's a resource. You see? Wouldn't that be weird? You're in a personal relationship or a friendship. If I came to Bill and, and I had this agenda that I'm going to build a relationship with Bill because he's ultimately a resource, what, kind of, what is that built on? That's built on a selfish agenda. I don't really even love him. I have to be, I have to, I want, I'm just using him. It's so disrespectful, so dishonest to him. And sometimes in my life, guys, I just got to tell you, and we got to be careful as a church, that we just shift away, we drift from passionately following Jesus to just wanting something from Him. Wanting something. Oh, Lord, please help us because we want these chairs filled. Okay, nothing wrong with that. I would love a lot of people, the valley, to know Jesus. Amen? But if I shift ever so subtly into beginning to use God to fill this because it makes me feel better, it's time to leave. Because now I'm using God and I'm using you for my own agenda. We've got to be real careful, guys, that, that when Jesus says Mary chose the one thing, it was to sit at his feet. When he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, he says the same thing to us. Come sit at my feet and love me. Amen? Just love him for him. Just love him. Just love him. And as we move forward into the fall, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how we can do Sundays. Maybe less of me up here and more just worship. More just times of prayer. More just times where the community, the family of God can come together once a week even and say, Jesus, we're just here to love you. We're just here to love you and love one another. I don't know what that's going to look like, but, but I'm real careful. You know, it's like I, t- I tell my kids, oh, I'm going to preach. I'm going to preach shorter. They're like, rock on, Dad. I'm still trying to figure that out. Because I have this passion, and I just want you to be passionate for Jesus. And I know we gather in you, and I so appreciate your willingness to be here, the sacrifices you make. And that's not a, I don't want it to be on me. I just want us to love Jesus. And I'm trying to figure out how we do that on Sundays in an hour and a half. I don't know. Because I'm just so concerned that we start doing everything really well around here and so good. And, our, and we just drift. And I don't want to drift. I don't want to drift personally. Summer was a big wake-up call. And thank you to my brothers and sisters who spoke up. I, it means a ton to me that you would admonish me. I preached on admonishment. I got it. Um, I so appreciate that. And God has said, okay, now be careful of the church. 
because I'm a type A, I can drive. And my concern is I drive this church into the ground. And we do a heck of a lot around here, but we're not even passionate about Jesus anymore. That's my biggest concern, is that we lose our first love and we just do church really well. We just do the church. I, 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 just, I just wouldn't want to be there. 1 John 4.19 says this. We love because he first loved us. Very familiar verse, but look what the other translations say. I love this. The New Living says, we love each other because he first loved us. And then the King James, I love we love him because he first loved us. So here's the thing. If your passion maybe isn't where it needs to be this morning, that verse says that my love for God comes from me understanding and receiving his love for me first. He initiates, he's the source. Amen? And sometimes in our walk with Jesus, guys, I'm honest, I'm, our passion wanes because we forget how much he loves us. We forget how much he loves us. And I love that verse in Matthew 6 where he says, hey, your father feeds the birds. And then he asks a very penetrating question. Hey, and, and by the way, Mike, aren't you more valuable? Cindy, aren't you more valuable than the birds? Really? Right? Aren't you more valuable than the birds? Aren't you more valuable? Aren't you more valuable, Betty? Right? Scott, aren't you more valuable? Are you? Do you believe it, guys? Do you believe that you're more valuable than the birds? It's, a, it's an argument from lesser to greater. He feeds the birds. He clothes the fields of the grass. You, as his children, are infinitely more valuable. Isn't he going to take care of you? Isn't he going to take care of you? And if you will take that step of faith and put your focus where it needs to be, watch what happens to your love for him. And then as a byproduct, watch what happens to your love for Jesus. The question is, when was the last time you actually called time out and reflected, meditated, spent the time to reflect on how valuable you are to God. How valuable. How much He loves you. And if you wonder, it's right there. God demonstrates His love. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When was the last time you pondered the biblical truth that Jesus hung on that cross? Because that's how valuable He is. Let's pray. Vinny and I, uh, Vinny will sing a song. Time of prayer, time of reflection on the love of God. Lord, thank you for loving us like you do. For loving us first. And perhaps we have drifted. I confess, and I thank you for revealing this summer was a bit of a drift for me. Even in all the good. I drifted into doing instead of being. I was passionate a lot of, about a lot of things and I lost sight of the one thing. You. So I thank you for forgiving me. I thank you for brothers and sisters who would share with me. And perhaps there are many here this morning that uh, have drifted. Instead of we are, the real thing is, are we? Are we passionate about Jesus? 
passionate about one of those things on that day. So we just want to spend time now in reflection, maybe in confession. Lord, be honest with us. Where are we in passionately following you? Bring us back to the heart of worship. If we've made our Christianity, if we've made church something it shouldn't be, then we ask for forgiveness. You want our hearts. You don't want us to use. You want a real relationship. So we choose to allow you to speak truth to us now.